This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. Thanks to Rode Microphones and Harlan Hogan's VoiceOverEssentials.com, the home of the Portabooth Pro. This is the Pro Audio Suite podcast with Robert Marshall from Source Elements and Someone Audio Post Chicago. Darren Robbo Robertson from Voodoo Radio Imaging Sydney. From LA, George the Tech Whitam, the Tech to the VO Stars, and me, Andrew Peters, voiceover talent and home studio guy. Okay, this week, as you've realised, we're joined once again by Bobby Osinski. Um, I wanted to talk to you, well, we all want to talk to you this week, Bobby, about what's happening with COVID and how things have changed. What's the biggest effect it's had on your business? Well, it hasn't had any on my business, to be honest with you. I work from home like I think you guys do. Yeah. So there's been absolutely no change. As a matter of fact, I've been busier than ever. So personally, it, it's it's been okay for me. Now that being said, the uh, living in Los Angeles, the social aspect of of that is gone, just like everywhere else. The networking aspect of that is no longer happening. So I miss that, but so does everybody else. But other than that, no, it, it hasn't affected me. The interesting thing, though, recording studios, especially the larger ones have not been all that affected either. And they've been working even during the lockdown when they Uh weren't supposed to. There were plenty of reports, and and I've had a couple of friends that have told me they've had sessions that were kind of clandestine. But nonetheless, they've, they've been working. And unfortunately, what I've heard is that in most cases, they're not masking up and... In many cases, they're not social distancing. I've heard it both ways where, in fact, there are sessions that were were certainly observing that and other ones that were not. And the word that came back from the studio managers was they tried really hard for the first couple of days to enforce it and then gave up. Wow. I, I also heard a story where a superstar and her significant other were entering a studio and a security guard admonished them for not being masked and she had them fired so you know these are things that are unfortunate but um and and, you know i heard this from a good source that was there it's funny with this uh i've got to say the this pandemic it brings out the good and it brings out the bad in people yeah yeah now this is i don't know whether you know about this but uh, i only learned this a few months ago that uh home studios in chicago are basically illegal Uh, not chicago in nashville well, they were, but now that's actually changed as of a couple, three weeks ago. Oh. And I had uh, Lid Shaw on my podcast who was leading the the um, the charge to get it changed. And he, what happened with him was he had, his studio was doing very well, his home studio. As a matter of fact, he said the same day that he got a Grammy, he also got a cease and desist certificate from the city telling him that he couldn't be using his studio anymore. Mostly because he got on the radar, not so much for the Grammy nomination, but mostly for the for putting YouTube videos out. And someone saw that and, and 
cease and desist. Now, that being said, it was not only for studios. It was for any home-based business, and that included um, masseuse, personal masseuse, uh, personal trainers, hairdressers, anything like that. So it was widespread. But the good news is that after two years or maybe even three, they've finally gotten, gotten city council to actually go back on that. Wow, because I was going to say, I, I would have thought the pandemic would have turned that around pretty quickly, but um, yeah, interesting, very interesting indeed. Is there any other states that have similar legislation? Well, we had it here in Los Angeles for a while, or at, at least they tried. Back in the, oh, I guess it was the early 90s, and we're still talking about the multi-track tape days, where it was really expensive to own your home studio because you needed a console, you needed a the tape machine, you needed all the support gear to go along. There was a producer that opened up his own studio and he was very successful. And it would have been okay if he would have kept it to himself, but he began to advertise. And the studio was called Secret Sound. Wasn't so much of a secret after that. He <laughs> yeah, was, was, say, yeah. was even so audacious as to print up flyers and leave them the doorways of the major studios so clients would see them going in. So what happened was there was a, a widespread <laughs> revolt from all the commercial studios. And they were successful in stopping that. Although uh, it never got to the point where it was a law. It was more of a zoning thing. And the city found a way to zone people out that were causing problems. That's interesting because, you know, on a smaller scale, we've had a something similar here as far as um, <clears throat> doing voiceover and having a home studio. There was a lot of pushback. And I think really it hasn't been going down that well until this pandemic. And all of a sudden, everybody's been told, you've got to have a home studio, otherwise you're not going to work. For good or bad. Well, I mean, one of the problems with studios here, home studios is not so much the fact that you're operating a business out of it. It's disturbing the neighbors, especially if you have a group of people in. Now, there's, it's less so during a pandemic, but if you have a group of people in and they leave late at night and there's a lot of banging of car doors and trash cans and stuff like that, that was causing more of a problem than actually operating a studio out of your home. Now, of course, all that's changed with the, the pandemic where there's... We're not seeing the big influx of, of large crowds in studios. I mean, we're seeing studios work, but, you know, they're also uh, smaller groups of people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting now, of course, because there are, you can have a commercial studios like The Hub and uh, people beaming in from their home studios. I mean, that's m much more prevalent these days and particularly with the pandemic, of course. But you'll be seeing, uh, because, you know, you're involved like George, <clears throat> um, with helping people set up home studios, what kind of disasters are you seeing that seem to be perpetuated by certain people with strange opinions as opposed to facts? Well, I don't know that I do that so much. I reluctantly give advice if I'm asked, but I don't... I, I, I don't um, lend it without, you know, being asked. And it's usually on a one-on-one -on -one basis. There's uh, acoustic advice, especially. I get a lot of people asking about acoustic uh, treatment, which I'm happy to tell them, but it all started with a uh, lecture that I gave at a school in Vancouver called Nimbus. And the lecture was, 
how to improve the sound of your room for $150 or less. You know, which is certainly possible. And what it is is just some common sense things, setting things up and putting a reflection-free zone around your listening area. And, you know, it doesn't cost that much to do. But then that kind of spun out of control all of a sudden where I had people asking me really deep acoustic advice that I don't want to give, especially not being on site and not being able to see what they're doing. But I'm talking about people that were were doing major reconstruction and, you know, talking about their studios. And it's like, no, 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 I, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this, you know. And there are people that are much better at this than me that you should hire to do this rather than asking me. So I've seen an uptick in that where people have gone not so much the home studio, but beyond the home studio, yeah. for better or for worse. Yeah, because we uh, discussed this um, a couple of weeks ago with a casting director in LA, and the question was about opinion versus science. And there seems to be an influx of opinion, particularly now, because everybody's scrambling for advice and surfing the net to try and find uh, you know any information they can. And you can guarantee that a large percentage of what they're actually looking at or listening to is an opinion as opposed to a science fact. And that's obviously having a pretty well, a detrimental effect on our business. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, what I try to do is do a lot of open Q&As. I do every Wednesday, if I can, a, a Facebook open Q&A. And most of the questions are dispelling myths, surprisingly enough. Hmm. They're recording myths. They're mixing myths. They're... Uh, you know, and there's some home studio advice. You know, what should I buy? Should I buy this or that? And my answer is, I'm sorry, I don't know. I haven't really used any of that stuff. You know, I've seen it advertised, but I, you know more about it than I do. So people are disappointed with that answer, but it's the truth. I'm not going to tell them to buy something or consider something that I haven't used myself. Have you noticed um, over the years a decline in the quality of audio? Well, I think the decline in the acceptance of what we consider good audio. The bar is much lower of what people are willing to accept. But I think there's more and more people that really care about what they're doing and are trying to do it well. How that translates to the outer world, the, the to reality, I'm not so sure. But, you know, again, people, there are many artists that are perfectly happy with what they can do on their smartphone, uh, which shocks me. You know, yeah. that's the world we live in. We've had examples on this show even of we've had people who take um, their recording equipment with them when they go bike riding and they stop and record voiceovers. Or we've had other people who record on their phone voiceovers. And we've had examples of someone who recorded a final, I can't remember what it was on, a final, but they were out camping. They were, they were camping somewhere. Yeah. On a, on a phone, yeah. On, on, their, on their iPhone. Um, I, I can see where that might come into play if the instructions were, we want it to sound like it was done on an iPhone. So please <laughs> yes, do it on your right. iPhone. I, you know, I, 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 mean, I can see that work, but Look, other than that, no. Yeah, and, and, but see, the, the point I was trying to get to was the, the, the answer that you get all the time is, well, the microphone in the iPhone is exceptionally good. And, and my sort of answer <laughs> to that is, yeah, it is. You're probably right. 
but it's still recording on an iPhone. You can't you can't get away from that fact. It, it, it might be good, but, you know, as we spoke about last week in the Quick Bite, the U87 is an exceptionally good microphone, but is it the right one? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think when you talk about standards, I think there's so many sort of, I don't know, caveats on what people think are, is acceptable now, whereas it used to be just the one standard. Again, the bar was higher back in the day when we had commercial studios and you pretty much had to go to one in order to get quality audio. And there was never any thought about doing it at home because most people couldn't afford the gear. And of course, as we got into the cheaper gear that was reasonably well-made and sounded reasonably good, then, you know, everything changed in terms of what we're willing to accept at that point. And, you know, then it was more, well... We're more about capturing the performance than the sound. And there's a, I can understand that to a degree, but, you know, let's face it, sound does count. And no matter what, if you have two of anything side by side that have to do with audio, you're always going to pick the one that sounds better for the most part. Your yeah. ear is going to go there right away. Yeah. And that pretty well answers that question, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I like to draw the analogy back to Star Wars. I mean, everyone knows, I'm sure, the, the famous George Lucas quote that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like audio is 50% of the picture. Um, and, 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 and I always come back to when people go... 51. <laughs> 51. When, when I always yeah. come back to... And when, when people go, I recorded it on my <clears throat> iPhone, it's like, yeah, okay, well, I wonder whether George Lucas would be happy with recording the dialogue for Star Wars on an iPhone. You know what I mean, or whatever. Back in the, even back in the day, back in the seventy late seventies, when they were doing that, it's like, yeah, you can, but is it the right way? Yeah, I, I was going to say earlier that that a lot of this like downgraded audio quality goes all the way back to the eight track and the cassette, and there was like a resurgence maybe when the CD came out, and then the first thing that began lowering the quality again after the CD, and ever since then it's been going downhill since then for the most part on deliverables was the mini disc which was like, oh, we don't need 16-bit, we can do this with 8-bit. <laughs> and then... Yeah. yeah. And that was like... And it was funny, there's a good article, if you can find it, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, 8-bit to 8-bit. And it, it's someone basically making the same argument, but it's been constant, I think, since, since really the 8-track, where it's like, what's the least that we can deliver where people won't complain? Well, I mean, radio accepting MP3s. I mean, and there's no standard on... Bit rates or anything else. I mean, MP3 by itself, let alone the quality of the MP3 for me is a no-no. But radio these days, God, you could send them anything. And they'll just go, sure, we'll play that. Not a problem. You know what's yeah. ironic about that was radio at one point in time was so, so persnickety about their audio. And they would have these elaborate signal chains just so they would sound better than their competitor because th there were lots of studies done by the NAB here that said that uh, audio quality matters. And if you have something that is not of acceptable quality, people are going to change the channel. So did we forget all that? Well, see, the thing that makes me laugh yes. on that, Bobby, is is we've now gone into a digital world. So we're now going, hey, you know, digital radio is here. It's the next latest and greatest thing. And the two things that make me laugh is that we're playing stuff off MP3 to air, and the majority of um, and the majority of digital radios that you buy are one speaker in this plastic crappy little box. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, well, 
why bother with digital? Gone are the days of us listening to a piece of vinyl lying in a beanbag with your headphones on. Yeah, mm, totally. Yeah. Well, remember, it, you know, way back when, geez, I hate to date myself, but every college student, their pride and joy was their stereo system, which far surpassed most stereo systems of today. But uh, that was just so common back then and yeah. not anymore. Not anymore. Well, now it's more about convenience. Everything. Yeah. I mean, even even all the voice actors, everyone wants to record on an iPad, but they still want to do their whole professional job and do a $30,000 national TV campaign on an iPad because they're more concerned about convenience than they are about doing the job right or providing the actually the best product. Well, it's up to a producer to crack the whip on that. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, it's probably more up to a client. <laughs> I, I, I would actually suggest it's probably more up to a client to go. Well, actually, that's not acceptable. We're paying. We're paying for this. Yeah. You know, we're not happy with that. I mean, when you're paying good money for something and you're actually being delivered something that's way under par, it should red flags should be popping up everywhere. But uh, unfortunately, I think people have got so used to the bar being so low that they don't even know what good is anymore. Andrew, do you ever get requests? To do a voiceover on a certain microphone? No, I don't. Which is interesting, based on last week's conversation about the U87. Mm -hmm. That was what made me interested in that, that whole um, thread on Facebook. Because I've never, ever been asked to use a certain microphone. No one even says, can you use a large diaphragm or a shotgun? They don't care. Mm -hmm. But aren't, aren't the clients similar to the talent and where... This whole world is like the clients want it fast, they want it convenient, and they're not act, like they're worried about quality up to the level where they're not to blame for it. But beyond that, maybe they don't actually care that much. Does that make sense? One of the things in the, in the studio business is the fact that record labels are being more careful about that. And you are getting delivery specs these days that are fairly high quality. I mean, they want 9624 files the entire sessions, mostly for archival purposes. But, you know, if you're going to work for a major label, there, there's delivery specs, and, and the bar is reasonably high these days, which you wouldn't expect considering, you know, <laughs> some of, of what they release. But it, it, I have to admire the fact that at least the bar is reasonably high there. Here, here's a question. I have a, I have a friend who... Uh, has done some mixing for you know indie and some major labels, and uh, he's received files like whole multi-track sessions that are uh, forty-eight or ninety-six or you know high sample rate, and for various reasons, including technical setups within his studio, he'll take that whole thing and knock it down to forty-eight, mix it, come up with a forty-eight k file, up-res it to ninety-six, and deliver it, and no one knows. Well, I've heard it people, fits his workflow better. <laughs> I've heard of people being busted for that, believe it or not. Really? Yes. Oh. Where they'll, you know, they'll go in with um, a bit sampler and, and actually look, and, and they'll they'll see. And one of the reasons why is if you're actually sending that ninety six twenty four file out to a high res service, they may catch it as well. So, uh, or to a, a high-res um, delivery platform, like Blu-ray or something like that. There's, there's many stages where that can be caught. 
So, you know, it, for an indie label, yeah, they're not going to say anything. Chances are that they're never going to know. Um, you know, maybe in some cases a major label, especially if it's a s subsidiary, but there are cases where that's not the, you know, they're, they're really on top of it. Wow. It's, it's interesting that, like, that's that's happened more than my friend who, <laughs> like, was just, like an off-the-cuff conversation I had with him, but because we were basically talking about, like, like, high sample rate. Can you even really actually hear the difference? Like, what's the real value? And we were both discussing how, like, the real thing is, you know, the main quality improvement is in the is in the bit depth before the sample rate, and uh, so yeah, that's that's where I heard that. But it's interesting that there's. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons for doing it is to future proof your your audio. You know, at some point in time, we're all going to be high res, and everything. All the delivery is going to be ninety six twenty four. I would have hoped it would have happened by now, especially because of Apple collecting all of these files for ten years now. But that being said, it, it is going to change over at a certain point. So, you know, that's one thing. I, now, the other thing I have to say is I have done the tests where we recorded the same thing on three different Pro Tools rigs, 192.24, 96.24, and 48.24. And this is quite a while ago. So th this is before, you know, we've had the great converters that we have today. But, the, you know, it's pretty good rigs. And I have to say, there wasn't that much of a difference between 96 and 48. There was a difference. You could hear it. Was it huge? No. But the difference between 96 and 192 was huge. It was huge. And it was one of those things where you automatically went, okay, I want to record at that sample rate from now on. Problem was, at that time, it wasn't feasible at the time because of the file size now that's not so much of a big deal, but you also have your processing and the amount of plugins you can use in most cases. So you have these limiting factors there that, that stop people from doing it. I got to ask, I got to ask, what is the difference when you're sampling frequencies up to about 48,000 hertz and now you're sampling frequencies up to roughly 96,000 hertz? How in the hell do you hear the difference? It sounded real. Uh, you know, I, all I can say is you've seen the, well, even this is dated. The, is it live or is it Memrex? A whole thing. Well, yeah, it was that moment where th there was, there was like seven or eight of us in the room and no one disagreed with this at all. Everybody went, wow, this is really fantastic. Especially on high-end tinkly stuff where, you know, it was just so real. It was like you were there. So now all you guys use Pono players? <laughs> <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever mess with, like, uh, you know, DSD, direct stream digital stuff? And, uh, um, you know, like the whole, what, what is that? Like sampling at megahertz, right? At one-bit converter running at megahertz? Yeah, it's 2.8, I believe. Yeah. Uh, uh, only a little bit. And the reason why was this was the bastion of Sony for the most part. And you had to, they had the gear. I mean, there, there was some that went out independently, but for the most part, you know, the, the rigs were few and far between. So it wasn't an easy solution. It's easier now than it was, but back then 
when I was doing. I, now, th this is in the days of 5.1 and, and DVD audio discs and SACDs, which there was a heyday until there wasn't. That's all I did, just 5.1 projects for, again, DVD video, DVD audio, and a few that made it to uh, DSD. And it was really good, I have to say. I have to admit that the project that I did probably didn't lend itself to that. I mean, you know, there's a lot that has to do with, with that as well. There's certain music that really shines at high sample rates and, you know, some that <laughs> doesn't so much. But I would like to, to work it again just to see. But I can't say I have huge experience like a lot of other people that I know. But I do in, again, the DVD audio realm when that was happening and uh, a little in Blu-ray because it was basically the same stuff that we're doing. Only we're doing it, and we're trying to do everything at 9624 at 5.1 at the time. Interesting talking about sample rates again. I mean, we've had this discussion before. What is the difference between 48 and 96 or going up to 192? Um, basically, as people of our vintage uh, probably can't hear a lot of that audio anyway once you go beyond 48 and up to 96, I wouldn't have thought. So... What were you hearing at 192? I, I know you said it was tinkly stuff, but the, what what was it scientifically that you were actually hearing, do you think? It was, there's a realism. The, the only thing I can say is, if you think of a high sample rate, the higher the sample rate, the closer to analog you're getting, right? It, you can think of analog as an infinite sample rate. So the higher your sample rate is, the closer to analog you're getting. So the, this just made it closer to it. Uh, you know, again, there's a realism where we're in the studio, you're listening in the control room, you're listening at 48K and 96, and, and you can feel that there's, you know, it's happening in another room, and all of a sudden it isn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe what it is on a scientific level is that because you're at such a high sample rate, you don't have to have such aggressive brick wall filters, which do ring out down into the lower frequencies. You don't have your sine wave at 20k looking like a square wave at 20k mm -hmm. which does create more harmonics above it that then you have to filter out again to keep the digital so maybe it's really the the processing of dealing with the nyquist uh, frequencies and when you push it way up there all that artifacts from the filters go away or are so much farther away from your from your perceivable hearing range that there's that you know, smoother sound, that reality that... Um, I, I can say I did mix a project. Um, like, I, I don't do a lot of projects at high sample rate, but I did do a full multi-track project at 96. And I do remember having the distinct feeling that EQ in particular just seemed to take better and be easier um, than fishing around and trying to find that sweeter high end where it just sort of... It was easier to mix, I guess, um, you know, getting air into the sound and making it sound more um, a breathable, breathing. Like, I don't know if that relates to anything that you've experienced, Bobby. Yeah, but, you know, I have to say, I haven't done anything at less than 96K in maybe 10 years. Oh, you're working exclusively at high sample rate. Oh, well, I no, I, I call it standard now, standard sample rate. It, it, there's, as a matter of fact, again, if you do work for a label, that's, delivery requirement so and, and i 
can't remember going into a session anywhere, even you know a friend's session, visiting, whatever, and seeing anything that was less than 96K. If you did see something that was 48, it would be remarkable. Uh, remarkable, and, and you would say, oh, you're 48K? Wow. What happened there? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like getting a 16-bit file now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly the same thing. Well, like, let's talk about bit for a second. So 24-bit seems to be the standard across the board because... What is that? 144 decibel range. 140 decibel range, right? What was the best case scenario for dynamic range on two inch Ampex tape, whatever it was? Maybe, I I think Dolby SR uh, beat 16 bit digital, which means that it just got past 96. 100, 100, like 96. It got into the 100 and something range. But I remember, and maybe that's different now, but um, there was a lot of talk earlier on when 24 bit came out that no one had achieved uh, an analog circuit with a signal noise ratio better than 120 decibels. So here's 24 bit running at 144. We've hit the practical limit because no one can make a circuit. And then maybe that's different now, I think. Maybe someone's so, figured out a way. So why does Audacity <laughs> and and Adobe Auditions why is why are their default recording bit rates thirty two bit floating point? Because Anybody it's know the answer point. to that one. <laughs> yeah, because it's floating point. It's not fixed point. So it's a different animal. It's so processing. It's, it's all for processing. Yeah. Right. So that so should I be telling people to record everything at thirty two bit float? Instead of just no, saying don't 24 do 30, bit? 32 bit, no one, no one runs it. Like, like 32 bit floats, not a very common file type down the, down the stream. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that one as much as 24. But why 48. do you think they became the standard default? I mean, like literally, somebody installs Audacity and they hit record and it's 32 bit float. Same with Audition. I didn't realize it's better. That. It's got to be better. It's, it's higher it's numbers. Theoretic- well, it's, 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 it's 24 bit with an 8 bit. Um, what do you call it? Decimal place after it, so you can. It does math on the signal differently. It's it's more flexible gain structure wise, because it's not um it's not it's not a fixed point. It basically has a decimal place, so you can move the like th- like thirty two bit float gets much more into the DAW mixing because you don't necessarily clip as easily because all you have to do is move the decimal place over. Um, so if you're not mixing, like if you're just a voice actor recording a wave and you're going to send it to production. It makes zero difference. I think so because I think I'm, and I might be a little bit out of range here. But if you have a 32-bit float with no gain difference in it, is that just a 24-bit file with a dot zero 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 after it? I don't know. I don't know. I either. think it might be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be. I have be. no idea. But all I know is a lot of people that have a USB mic plugged into uh, a PC recording 32-bit float files on Audacity. <laughs> Because they have no idea wow. what's going on. Yeah, well, why so, would they? You know, it's, again, it's yeah. one of those things where if you're using Audacity in the first place, you, you're not you're not sure about things like resolution. Right. <laughs> it's just fascinating. Yeah. So okay, so 24-bit captures the the optimal dynamic range. That's we've pretty much we don't need to argue that we need more bits than 24 at this point, right? Right. I mean, I mean, remember that discussion a long time ago where I was talking about how you can record at minus 48 decibels down on a 24-bit file and have the same resolution as 16-bit? Yeah, I use this a lot because like, it's making voice actors' jobs to record a good track actually a lot easier. You know, conventionally, we would always say, you know, 16-bit, 44-1, record with peaks at minus 6, you know, 
blah, 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 over and over. That's what we told everybody. And then, you know, once, once we really understood better, thanks to you, Robert, um, 24 bits quality improvement for, for even a voice track, um, I started telling people, use 24-bit, set your peaks at like something more conservative, like minus 12 and minus 18. And now you have all this tons of headroom and you don't have to worry about the aliasing. A quick Google search on 32-bit float and it yields, I shit you not, you can bleep that out later, <laughs> 1,528 decibel dynamic range. Hmm. That's absurd. <laughs> I mean... Fascinating. That's so, like a mouse farting on Mars. Yeah, because each because each through decimal space place, where there's a vacuum. Yeah, each decimal place is a logarithmically. It's an order of magnitude, yeah. right? Isn't it like each, each decimal place is ten times more? So in fixed point, each bit is six decibels. Gotcha. But in but float, thirty-two bit float. I don't know I mean, because, more, like I said, float is floating point. You're moving your decimal around. Right. So so I guess what it is in floating point is you can use all thirty-two bits. If you have no decimal after it, you can use it all in the main, in the most significant bit part of your word. Yeah. And then you get this huge <laughs> dynamic range that is just insane. And then you can start playing with the gain structure. Um, and there's so many discussions about 32-bit versus 24-bit because, in a sense, fixed point treats it more like analog audio, where if you run the volume down lower and lower and lower, you lose resolution. Whereas supposedly right. with 32-bit, as you run the re audio resolution down and then you bring it back up, you don't lose any resolution. So like imagine you take a 24-bit file and you put a minus 100 decibel gain change on it and then later you put a plus 100 decibel gain change on it. You're, you're not going to get back what you had in it originally, right? Even though you went minus plus 100, by going down minus 100, you've just killed your resolution. You've, you've lost data. And yeah. My understanding with 32-bit is that you do that minus 100 decibel change, and all you've done is move your decimal place over. And then you want it back, and you move your decimal place back, and you've not lost any resolution in your down and back up move. It's interesting because I was asked, this is a few years back, to send a file and I said, I'll send you a WAV file, 4824. It's like, no, 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 no. Send me an MP3 oh. at 4832 or 320. Why, why would they want that? Because they're nuts. An MP3 at... <laughs> <laughs> they, they want the file to send twice as fast because it's half as big? Correct. That was, that, that, was the, that was the reason. It was a quicker to download. But... Um, what what? How would the sound quality be affected as opposed to forty eight twenty four white white file, and MP three at forty eight thirty two? MP three is lossy format. I mean, you know, there's it's compressed. It's definitely harder to perceive at higher bit rates. I mean, it's hard to hear it at three eighty four mono. You know, a mono file at three eighty four kbps or something. It's pretty hard to, to hear, but. It's still a lossy format. And and then you've still got to put it into Pro Tools or whatever your door is. You've got to manipulate it in there, compress it some more, EQ it, fuck around with it, spit it out, which means it's getting processed again, and then upload it, you know, so it's getting compressed again to wherever it's going to finally end up at. You know, it's not just where you start from. No, that's the problem. It, it's an okay deliverable. Obviously, we'd rather have the full file, but... As a deliverable for an end result, it's okay for the end, end user. But if it has to be demuxed and remuxed or de decoded and recoded over and over, it's almost like dubbing a cassette tape. 
making a dove of a dove, man. It yeah. just gets worse and worse and worse. It's like baking a cake where half the ingredients are already pre-mixed. So 32-bit float, I mean, here it is from the internet, must be true, but 32-bit float is a 24-bit recording with an 8-bit volume. That's the floating that point means. part of it, the 8-bit on the end. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to know what that, understand that, grasp that. Come on, Bobby, you'd know all this stuff. It's like a 20-bit, yeah, on, Bobby. It's, it's like a 24-bit file with a multiplier. Ah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's where that's that where the dynamic it. range gets so ginormous, right? Because it's a multiplier. You can multiply it by eight bit, which I forget yeah. eight times six times eight is like like you got forty eight decibel or something. I, I'm not sure exactly. That might be the wrong number, but yeah, you can. Like I said, and 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 in this in this paragraph here is explaining the same thing. You can drop your volume and bring it back with the with the fixed point. You lose it with the floating point. You've just moved your decimal around. So 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 because I want to know. Is it okay for me to tell a voice actor one? Is it okay for me to tell a voice actor to not be so worried about their gain? Set it so that they're peaking. Let's say just average day to day minus twenty dB peak. Record a twenty four bit, and just set it and forget it, and then say normalize to minus three and send it off. Is that okay? I think no one would be the wiser. Because it will, would sure they make will my actors' up, jobs a lot easier. They wouldn't yeah, have to constantly they will, fart with the gain control. and uh, Right. They will pick up a negligible amount of noise because they're not running their preamp at the optimal space where it wants to be, right. but it's going to be negligible. Really. You mean the $2 I mean, chip it, it, on the Scarlet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, like, you know, but 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 that's the only price that you pay is that you're not by recording at a low level, it's not that you're losing digital resolution, it's that you're not optimizing your analog input into that digital system by, right. by recording at such a low level. Right. The difference, though, again, is like so many things with audio. It's so minuscule. Is it worth the headache? Is it worth possibly clipping the signal? Absolutely not. Better not to yeah. clip. Right. Bobby, how much do you concern yourself about how much gain is going into a preamp when it's a solid state I know tube beside, but with a solid state pre, like a grace or something, are you concerned about how much gain you're hitting the preamp with? Uh, yes, there's still a sweet spot. Yeah. But the sweet spot is, uh, I have to say, Pretty it's wide. wider than, than on a piece of tube gear, but yeah. Uh, so it's more forgiving. But yeah, I, you know, I would tweak it until find that spot. I mean, George, you're talking about having people peak at minus 20, right? Yeah, I mean, but then maybe someday they peak at minus 10 because now they're doing some monster voice, you know? So they've got that extra 15 dB of headroom to play with. Right, so the only other issue there is if they're recording in with something that puts dither on the signal and then they gain it up, all that dither noise will float up with it. But why would they be doing that? I don't know. It depends on what, like they stick some plug-in in it and some plug-in decides that it needs dither. Right. You know, and then now you got dither noise in the lower bits, and you're recording way low. So now you gain it up by 20 decibels, and now you just moved your dither. Yeah, but all things being equal, like no plugins, no dither, just they're having to then deliver a raw right. wave file to a video game company. And the character has about 40 dB of dynamic range, maybe 50, right? They go, I like, I want to eat your brains, and I'm gonna kill you. And they don't, and all they right. do is they sit right at their mic, and they're three inches off the grill, and they wail away. You know, can we just set that sucker with a peak level at minus, you know, twenty five on it's the? A, 
I personally think it's a good practical solution in the sense that theoretically you're not optimizing your analog front end and you might float some dither noise up a little bit, but I think on the yeah. practical side, like, yeah, way better than possibly clipping it, way better maybe for the actor having to deal with all that technical stuff. It's just be in the creative space and don't worry about my gain. I think there's a lot of good reasons to be able to do that. If I would say you do that if you're definitely working with a script or something that's an extreme dynamic range. If yeah. your next gig is a commercial voiceover where you're just going to be here in the same place the whole time, well, just, yeah. Goose it's a lot the, easier to monitor it if it's at a higher gain. You know, it's yeah. like if it's so, so below you can't even monitor it. You know, there's a lot of issues. Right. I mean, it, I mean, if you're low so gain. low and then your clients are coming back at you nice and hot, now you're like, ah, <laughs> trying to right. hear you yeah. yourself over your clients or something. Yeah. So, I mean, but I think it is a good solution if you're dealing with a script that has an extreme dynamic range and you just want to be in the creative space and not worry about yeah. hawk-eyeing your meters. Robert, you mentioned about putting a, a crazy plug-in on. I have a, a good friend who has a studio and Britney Spears came in to do some vocals. And my friend had won 16 Grammys. So he knows what he's doing. And he went and he rented his favorite C12, going through a nice Neve 1073, going through a nice vintage LA 2A. And it was a pristine signal path and it sounded terrific. So her producer came in and set everything up, set of Pro Tools, and she began to sing, and my friend was petrified because it sounded so terrible. And he couldn't figure out why. But nobody in the control room thought any differently. They, they were perfectly happy with the sound. So he didn't say anything. He just rolled with it. So finally, when they were finished, everybody left. He went over to the Pro Tools session to see what was going on. And they were recording through five different plugins, of which... There are EQs, some that were boosting and others that were cutting at the same frequency. There was all sorts of compression and you name it. He went and he bypassed everything and there was this beautiful C12 sound again. Wow. This gets into something that I see in the music industry a lot, which is this whole thing about I want to process right down to the hard drive, which when I got out of school and I was like, oh, wow, digital. And this was even with like... 16-bit digital stuff and I was like I don't need to pro I don't need to EQ to tape anymore but now with all the younger engineers and I think a lot of engineers there's this whole thing of like I I mean even if it's processing through a plugin they want to compress and EQ down to the hard drive and burn it in and have no choice later and I don't know why there's this movement for that. I think I think UA is pushing it, to be honest, because it's a function of the UA interface. I think the plug-in manufacturers, the plug-in developers are pushing that. I don't think it's overtly that they're doing it, but it's obviously, you know, one of those things where by this, it's going to make everything sound great. Just use it all the time. And while you're doing that, use this one too. And this one. And this one, this one, this one, right. Yeah. Do you yeah. process to tape? Like, I mean, maybe if you have an analog piece of gear that you're not going to get, but um, if you're in the studio and you have a singer, do you go through analog gear, like besides the preamp, do you pass it through? What's, what's your signal chain typically? Are you burning your processing in or are you leaving your, your options open for later? Uh, never. Um, no, I never process in. The exception might be a limiter... An, an for analog, protection. 
for that's protection. That's not sound. That's that's Just that's that's a that's an insurance policy. Knocking a couple dB off of the top of a vocal, a couple of dB peaks, and that if that. And that right. would be it. But everything else is just flat, you know, recorded in. There are times where maybe you might want to do a little bit of EQ, but you, if that's the case, you kind of know exactly what you're going for and you know you're not going to change it later. But that's kind of rare. Now, that being said, let me tell you a story about Ken Scott, one of the five Beatle engineers, and you know who he is with Supertramp and David Bowie and everything. Uh, when I track, if, if I'm producing... I can't do both. I can't engineer and produce at the same time. So I usually hire somebody that's really good. And in this case, I hired Ken to come in and, and do all the tracking for me, which was really good. It was a good experience because I watched what he did and it kind of verified that, oh, yeah, okay, I've been doing it right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, oh, I'm doing it the EMI way. But that being said, I discovered something that was totally unique. Ken EQs the microphones, not the sound. He always uses the same microphones. He's used them for so long that he knows them so well that he'll go and he'll add EQ because he knows what they need. And how I discovered that was we had a drum kit and it was all set up and he has put his stuff on it. It sounded great. And we decided to change the kit out. And we pulled the kit out, put the new one in. He didn't change anything and it sounded great. And I looked at him, I said, what happened here? He says, oh, yeah, you know, I, no, I EQ the mics. I've never heard of anybody else doing that. But it's pretty brilliant when you think about it. But you have to know that microphone. You have to know your signal path so well that you can actually do that. But totally unique to me. I, I, you guys ever hear of that? Something like that? I, I've not heard of that one. Like, like I just know the, the frailties in this particular mic. I mean... You, you do see a lot of engineers that are like, I just take a drum kit, like no matter what it is, and I dump 400 out of it. Like these overall, yep. like I take 200 and boost it into the snare and dump 400 from the toms and add 12K to the overheads. And there's my, whatever, there's my drum setup. And they do the same thing for every kit almost. And I don't know if that's really the right approach, but that's one example of like a blanket setup that people keep on using over and over and over again, even when it, a different instrument as yeah. is the case there. I think it's dangerous um, to do do that, to have just blanket. Yeah, I could see you doing yeah. that for a festival, you know. Yeah. I got to mix 12 bands today in the next eight hours. Yeah, yeah, I've okay. I've done that hell. Right. That's hell, right? So you just know. Sure. I'm going to do these 78 settings and just go with it. But that's a different story altogether. You know, talking about gain structure, here, here's another approach I've seen people take and talk about where... Um, you can mic up your hi-hat and get that thing hitting up in like minus whatever, minus 10, minus 6. You're getting a good signal noise ratio on that track. And you know when you mix that later, that fader is going to be at like minus 30. Or <laughs> yeah, whatever, right. right. Right? Okay. So I've seen other engineers take the approach where I'm going to mix, I'm going to track everything down so that I can get my, when I bring it back, faders at zero is my mix. Yeah, but that means that you're recording that hi hat, maybe in digital minus twenty four. You know, twenty four bit doesn't matter anymore. But back in the analog day, like you record that hi hat down at minus thirty, and now you've got all that tape hiss. So, you know, you you have the op. If you recorded it hot, you have the opportunity to turn the fader down, thus removing tape hiss. But there's 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 a workflow out there that people talk about where it's like I want to record everything 
at mix level. And then I just bring faders up. I've even seen engineers in Nashville talk about this, where they just like, you know, if the recording, kit, if the drum kit's tracked out nice, you just bring the faders up to zero, and there it is. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I've seen that. Even back in the analog days, I've seen that. But mostly the, the idea behind it was, this is going to somebody else to mix or to edit or whatever. And the easiest way to make sure that they have a reasonable mix is to just set it like that so everything is going to come up at zero. And, and that was the idea behind it that I saw. And, and again, this goes back to the analog days where, yes, you did have those problems with signal-noise ratio and everything, but the the fact of the matter is you might be able to get by that just by the fact that, you know, you're, you're giving somebody a better mix than, they may, than maybe they could get themselves. Right. And... The technical, and I, I, I think uh, I was talking to someone about it. It's not that you're adding noise to it by recording the mic low. You're just losing the opportunity to remove that noise because sure. if you record silence onto the tape track, there's your tape hiss at minus 40 or whatever, however low it was. Yeah. But if you record the signal hot to it, now you bring the fader down, now you've taken your tape hiss and lowered it. So you didn't add noise, you just lost the opportunity to reduce noise. Yes, that's true. A mate of mine was the, the resident uh, engineer at Rack in London. And um, when he first kicked off engineering, he was told by Mickey Most uh, during a session when he was recording to just, the vocal, just crank it to distortion. Uh, mm. And that's how they were putting the vocals down, distorted. Well, I can remember doing a session for the cars. And I got my normal drum sound and everything. And then uh, Roy Thomas Baker came in. And everybody said, oh, Roy, get your sound, get your sound. And Roy went over to the console. And what he did before, it, before he did anything, he asked that we tape cardboard over the meters. And he, then he went and he did his thing. And we could hear the meters pinging. You can hear them, you know, pinging off the stop. <laughs> <laughs> the VU meters like ding, ding, yeah. ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah. cool. So later when we left, when they left, uh, did a playback. And sure enough, everything went up to, you know, plus six. <laughs> and that was it. And just stayed there. And that was his sound. That was, and, you know, we've heard it so many times and perfectly okay. <laughs> wow. But it's not it, something that I would have done. It, you know, I would have thought, oh, God, reflexively, this is not going to work. I interned at a studio in Philly. It's now closed their doors, but it was Sigma Sound. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was interning in 97 under Joe Tarja's son. Joe was the owner. Yeah. I was working with Mike Tarja. Yeah. And, uh, guy, I mean, those guys did a lot of records. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, Great big, records. Like OJs and Jackson 5 and Young Americans. Uh, Bowie. David Bowie. I even got to meet Bowie because he came in and did a special live stream, oh, like wow. a live radio show from there. It was insane. Um, but <laughs> sitting in that studio with Tarja and just seeing the back as an intern and literally had my fingers in my ears. <laughs> he oh, had the so Yuri monitor so loud that the white, the lights inside that are the protect lights, I guess, <laughs> that are in line with the tweeters, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Are flashing, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what's what are those lights in there for? You know, like like I didn't even I was too embarrassed to ask because I didn't want to be. That's your cilia getting paved down. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing, and like I don't know, a few months later, I had to call, you know, the balls to ask him. You know, I was like, why do you monitor so loud? Well, Clear Mountain he monitors at like 88 to dB, and this is the way I do it. So you know, why would you ask me that? <laughs> 
<laughs> like ear bleeding loud is not good, but if you mix too low, you you need to get above. I think the the Fletcher Munson curve so that you're in the mm-hmm. right place because your ears hear EQ differently at different volumes, and so sure. sure. So you, you you do need to be in somewhat. I mean, that's why movies basically actually when you mix a movie, you don't touch the control room volume because you're mixing to a level. Well, that's and why there's dim buttons on consoles, right? I mean, right. you know, it's like you want to lock that because you calibrate that that right. You're it's like calibrating my, like eighty two decibels or something. I try to tell and people that all the time. Like they, uh, they 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 hear two files and they go, "This one sounds better." And I'll say, "Do you know why?" And they're like, "No." And I said, "Because it's three dB louder." Yeah. Louder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they just yeah. have they're like they have no right. concept of that. I'm like, this, this is, is this is a really big deal. Like, if you think that plug in or whatever just sounds better, no, it's just it's louder. And and so yeah, in I mean, fact, Bobby, what do you do? You have, do yeah. you pay attention to what your monitor levels at? I mean, I know you do, Bobby, but what it actually is? Like, do you monitor a certain SPL? No, but I I have uh, three places, and this is what I recommend to everybody. I have three places that I and three levels that are repeatable. One is a high level, relatively high, that I only use for a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Mostly, Client mode. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> mostly to gauge the low end. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And then a reasonable level for the rest of the mix, and then at the very end, go down to whisper level. Right. And then you can hear things jump out, you know, for better or for worse, and do the final I hear that. Yeah, that's Here's cool. something I do. I will... I will pull the volume in a music mix off and I will pull the volume all the way down so you can barely hear it. And I want to hear the vocal just above it. I want the vocal to be the last thing that I lose in the mix so that I know that I got my vocal where I want it to be. Does that make sense, Bobby? Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. Well, that, that's the whole thing with uh, pink noise mixing. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Never heard of that, no. Yeah, you put pink noise up and then you bring the level of each mix element up until you can just barely hear it. And then when you take the pink noise off, you'd be surprised how close to a good mix it's going to be, a good balance. It actually does get you in the ballpark. It's not bad at all. Oh, that's cool. That's wow. interesting. That's really interesting. So yeah. that, that's like, that's dealing with the masking and, yeah. and basically getting the signal just above the masking level. Yeah. Huh, I gotta try that one. Yeah. That's really interesting. Like I was saying before, I, I generally hire a really good engineer when I produce so they can track and I don't have to think about it. And in every single case, the level was much louder than I felt comfortable. Much louder. But the thing about it is, I, you know, and I, my initial thought would be, oh God, I'll never be able to do this. I get used to it. <laughs> yeah. You know, after a while. So I, my question is, and this is probably one thing with, it's going to be different, obviously, because you're recording uh, singers as opposed to spoken voice, but what is your favorite vocal chain? Well, I can't say for the microphone because it's always matched the singer. So there'll be three, four, five microphones up if it's the first time I've worked with, with a singer. And then you just find the one that kind of works the best, which I'm constantly surprised Sometimes it's not the best mic that you have, you know, in the the mic box. But uh, and then you know, I like to go into a really good preamp. My favorite would be a Boulder or a um, I can't think of the name. A Hardy, John Hardy. Oh yeah, here yeah. in Evanston. Yeah, wonderful gear. And that's totally. Do you know the favorite. mic preamp? Have you ever heard of the Gordon mic preamp? Yes. Oh yes. Have you used one? No. 
I want to use one. It's like, just to get really geeky for a moment, the way most preamps work is that you get full gain out of the chip, and then with a feedback loop, it pulls the gain back. So so you're working, um, and if you hear Gordon explain it, he can explain it better, but basically you're working with a fully noisy signal and then pulling the, the signal back to where you want it to be. Whereas the way his design is, he, I think he calls it like true gain, where it's only adding the gain that you want. It's not feed, it doesn't have a feedback loop. It's a, it sounds like you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of things that are all the same, like every speaker is a moving coil and every, you know, like all these things are the same. It sounds like he actually has somewhat of a unique approach to a mic preamp compared to all the other preamps are just a version of the same circuit, you know? Yeah, that's true. But I've heard wonderful things about those preamps and they are eye-wateringly expensive. I mean, <laughs> they're like, I think they're like 1500 bucks or more for just one channel. But um, yeah, yeah, I you know I think that's kind of common that you're in a two thousand dollar range for something that's going to work pretty well, and it's not uh, not common. I I mean the Hardy's like eight hundred bucks for a single channel, and it's, uh, it's yeah, but you still have to buy the chassis and everything. So yeah, you know it does become more than that. So what do you do coming out of the John Hardy? Well, nine times out of ten, it's directly into yeah. you know the the recorder, but. Um, there is that occasion when, you know, there'll be a, something in the middle to knock some peaks off. Do you, do you prefer the Hardy with the Jensen transformer as the output transformer? Yes. Yeah. You know, I'll deal with it both ways because I like them so much. I, I it's my favorite. It's like, it's like you can't go wrong. Very fast, very, very fast, you know, like snappy preamp, you know, with the yeah. transients and everything. And, um, yeah. The boulder's somewhat the same. I don't think they make them anymore, unfortunately. But it's basically the same circuit. It's the the Jensen nine ninety nine ninety. Yeah. So I I'll, mean, I'll, it, I'll use a Millennia, and the Millennia uh, like HV three seems similar, but a little bit smoother. Whereas the Hardy's like, I mean, every little mouth click, yeah. <laughs> Hardy's like, boom, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tend to stay away from the things that a lot of people like, uh, Neves, and you know those things. Uh, I do like APIs a lot. Um, not so much for vocals, but every now and then, there's a vocalist where you kind of need an edge, and that that might give it to you. A, a, a three twelve. Why do you steer away yeah. from a Neve out of interest? I, you know, it's the the sound the just never, just never resonated with me for some reason. I, I mean, it's not bad, and it's something that I'll use if it's there, and won't think twice about it, but. Um, you know, if I have a choice of something else, I'll go for that instead. Wow, it's interesting. Ne- Here's an fine. obscure one. Yeah. Have you ever worked on a Neotech board or used a SciTech preamp or any of that, that gear? Yes. What do you yes, think? Yes, to both. And they were surprisingly good. Yes. And those are just chips. I mean, not even like a 990 chip. They're just like, you know, like Burr Brown chips. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, I, of course, I'm mentioning all the Chicago gear here, but yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course <Yeah>. you are. <laughs> and I, I mean, it's funny. You talk to someone from Chicago and they're like, Neotechs are awesome. Yeah. And then you leave Chicago and no one's like, Neo, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the other one was good. I worked for AMEC for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. I was a national sales manager way, 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 way back. That's very interesting. And I have questions for you. <laughs> I've gone through, uh, and pretty much the older stuff, the 2500s, 3500s, the Angela's, you know, those, yeah. um, the the tax, TACs, 
they had surprisingly good preamps as well. It was a hybrid preamp. Uh, and I can remember that Dean Jensen's office was right next to ours. And Graham Langley, the designer, came over one day and he decided that he was going to meet Dean Jensen. And Dean wouldn't meet him unless he brought his schematics with him. And I can remember Dean going, oh, well, this is interesting. Oh, yeah, well, this is good. Well, we should do a deal together. So, it, you know, it got Dean's um, seal of approval. And, and that's Langley's design because, because not, yeah. you know, not to be confused with the Amic 9098. Yeah. Um, but really funny you mentioned Amic because um, what we haven't finished commissioning yet, but what I picked up for a ridiculously low amount of money and therefore I picked it up is I'm putting an Amic big into my studio. Mm, there you go. And it's not, it's like not exactly the most glorious thing that Amic made. It's certainly huge bang for the buck back in the day, but I would love to hear your opinion of that. <laughs> well, I left before that came out, so I know of it. I don't have much experience, but I do know it was a... Um, Very mid-level. It, it, it was more of a of a TAC, a TAC thing, where it was the same, uh, I think it's the Burr-Brown chip for the preamps as well. Yeah. I think. I, I I, I haven't had much time on it yet because we're still doing the TT bay, so I really don't have. But supposedly it's the same EQ-ish circuit as the Angela. I don't. And the Angela, the first Angela is more loved than the second Angela. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know anything about the preamp. What is ridiculous is the facilities that were put into such a small board. That's what's kind of amazing about that that board. Well, it, it, there's a lot of politics behind all that. Mostly, it was because a competitor was doing something similar. So it was like, well, we have to do that too. If So a lot of it, sometimes Neotech was a big competitor. So that, that drove some of the designs. And I think Harrison drove some of the designs uh, on some of the higher consoles. But there was a, a lot of, uh, oh yeah, there uh, SSL as well drove a lot of right. that, for better or for mm. worse. Yeah. It, have you it talk about preamps? Have you ever used um, a Sebatron? No. Oh yeah. Oh, bringing up the Australian stuff now. Yep. Well, might as well. And Melbourne as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> Sebatron really... Sound Sound Pure. I think must be the distributor in the states for Sebatron. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're really interesting. The guy basically, I suppose, a bit like John Hardy, I guess. He you know works from his house and builds um, builds these beautiful preamps. I have one here. It's lovely. Going to check it out. Yeah. No, they're really cool. Do you, do you know what's in it? Do you know like what op amp he's using or anything? No, like I that? don't. I should actually find out, but um, I have no idea. But I know that uh, the guys at SoundPure love them. They're always um, plugging them. In fact, they had a big um, EDM that went out a couple of weeks back, and it was all Sebatron. Interesting. Yeah. What, what's your What's your opinion of the uh, Focusrite ISA preamps? The old ones. The the original ones. Yeah, yeah. the original ones are are great. Since yeah. then, I don't know, not so much. Job. But, yeah. but uh, the original ones were, were awesome. The original Focusrite consoles were fantastic. Have you, have you ever worked on one of those? I mean, what, there's like six of them or ten of them in the whole world? Yeah, there's not many, but uh, there's one down in Ocean Way. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's, that's where uh, Joseph Jack... What, Jack Quigg, yeah, right. Jack right. Quigg, yeah. He's had that famous picture where like every piece of gear on Earth is about to fall on top of him. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that was part of Jack's persona for getting gigs. Right. You know, a, a lot of it was 
And I have to say, he had some vintage gear that you probably would never see anywhere else. But, um, you know, it was kind of like, well, come here. And, like um, like some sort of like weird this. CBS compressor or something yeah. like that, like vintage yeah, gear yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, there's some cra- like his home studio now. The one he works from these days is full of all this bizarre stuff. Yeah. Well, that's also the way Steve Albini is. Like he's got a really deep mic closet, but a lot of it's like like Lomo Russian microphones. It's it's not necessarily all the go to mics that you typically see. It's still a great mic collection, and but a lot of it is. Um, you know, you go you go to a studio and you pull out the mic drawer and there's a KSM 32 that Greg Norman modified as a tube mic, or all yeah. kinds of fun stuff. Do you and guys know who Sylvia Massey is? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I was going to bring her up before when you mentioned Neve because she swears by Neve. Yeah. Well, Sylvia is doing the ultimate microphone book. She's been working on it for three or four years, and she's going way, way, way down in the weeds. To uh, or she's she's actually sought out mic collections all over the world. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I understand they bought a collection because the guy was retiring or something like that, and um, brought it over here with the idea of putting a museum together. But uh, it's going to be fantastic. I think she wouldn't have it out by now. But uh, it was one of those things where. Every time she thought she was finished, there was a new collection with different microphones that no one's ever, very few people have seen before. But I can't wait for this book to come out. Yeah, I heard she was doing that. I saw a video where she was talking about that. And I saw her actually go to Abbey Road and interview, I can't even think of the guy's name. He's the mic tech. He's been there for years and years and years. And keeps this very strange handwritten book. Yeah, of, of every microphone and all the details of what these microphones do and sound like, and and he was pulling out some absolute bizarre yeah. old mics to show her. It's extraordinary. Now, one of the reasons why she's uh, she likes Neves so much is she she grew up on Neves, and then she's owned one for a long, long time. So you're kind of predisposed to the first things you've worked on. Because she was at Sound City, wasn't she? You are, yeah, yeah. And see, yeah, for me, yeah. it was APIs. So I'm kind see, of predisposed. See, for me, it was Neotex. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you're you're predisposed, predisposed to what you worked on. And I think Robbo's first console that he worked on when he was learning his trade was a Harrison from memory. Oh, there oh. you go. Um, but he certainly hasn't got one. Because we're in the middle of a pandemic, things have changed quite dramatically in the industry, both yours and the voiceover industry. What do you see... The, the future, how do you see it looking? Do you see the home studio being stronger or do you see something else? Well, already we were seeing a resurgence in commercial studios prior to the pandemic, and I think it's continuing, mostly because the music business is fairly healthy these days and budgets have gone up. Not so much on the low end for you know baby artists, but certainly if you have any traction as an artist, th- there's money. And when it's all said and done, people like commercial studios. They like being pampered, at least the big ones. The ones in the middle, not so much because they don't know how to do that. But the higher end, they're busier than ever, or they they were. And um, last time I heard, everybody in town was. So that will continue. Uh, home studios, on the other hand, are going to carry on. And the studio designers I know before the pandemic anyway, were as busy as they've ever been. 
And a lot of it has to do with high-end personal studios. And again, we're talking about artists that can afford this. Yeah. So that's not going to go away either. And certainly from the low end, um, the, the manufacturers that I've talked to during the pandemic, as well as um, gear manufacturers like Sweetwater here, they've been busier than ever. They've been selling as much as they could get. And it's mostly people that have decided, well, you know, I'm here. I might as well learn how to do this. And, and I think that's helped my business as well, where I've found that there's a lot of people that went, well, I'm going to be at home for a while, so I have to kill some time. Let me find out more about this. Yeah. Bobby, you mentioned Sweetwater here. Yeah. Like Fort Wayne? Fort, yeah. Sweetwater in where, Fort Wayne. Where are you in Indiana? No, no, no. I'm oh. in Burbank, California. Okay, no, I was about I, to say, like... <laughs> I'm in Sweetwater in the United States. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. But I had Chuck um, on, on my podcast not too long ago, and he was, you know, saying that they're busier than ever. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you can check out that podcast. Uh, Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle suggest you have a good listen in there. Chuck, who got well, his start doing samples for Kurzweil. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he tells the story, as a matter of fact. Yeah, great interview. Well, thank you, Bobby. Thank you again. And um, good luck with the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, likewise, I have to say uh, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Robert. Thanks, everybody else, for having me. This show was mixed by Voodoo Sound, edited by Andrew Peters, using Source Connect Now and Rode microphones, with technical support from George the Tech Whittem. Don't forget to subscribe and like us. You're